Our text for today is from our gospel reading from Luke chapter 22. We are going to be digging into this text, so as always, I do encourage you to open up God's Word. If there is a Bible near you, grab one of those Bibles, your Bible app on your phone. And Luke chapter 2 in our church Bibles is found on page 882, page 882. You know, the story of Judas and his betrayal, it is a very tragic story. Judas, who was a disciple of Jesus, Judas, who was a dear friend of Christ for three years, he followed him, he saw these amazing miracles, he heard this amazing preaching with the authority of God, he saw the great power of Christ, he saw the love and the tenderness of Jesus, and yet somehow he turns against his friend, his Lord, his Savior, his God, his King, he turns away from him and he betrays him. It's a tragedy and there's a lot of darkness. A lot of darkness in this moment. And literally, it happens at night. They're surrounded in the darkness there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet, within the darkness of this account of the betrayal of Judas, there is a light that shines. There's three different things. We're going to break this section into three different sections. We're going to look at verses 47 and 48, and there we see a loving word. We're going to look at verses 49 to 51, and there we're going to see a gracious act. And then verses 52 and 53, we'll see an unstoppable plan. A loving word and a gracious act and an unstoppable plan, light shining in the darkness. So let's dig in. First of all, the first light shining we see here is a loving word, starting with verse 47. While Jesus was still speaking to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, there came a crowd, it says. Now, the Greek word here for crowd, uh, in other places is translated as a great multitude. This isn't just three or four or five people that have come to arrest Jesus. Sometimes if you have uh, children's Bibles at home, they portray it just in the artwork of just three or four people, five people who are coming. No, the Greek here, it's more like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, maybe even 100 people that are coming in opposition to Christ. And this is uh, chief priests and it's religious leaders and it's what's called the guard there in the temple in Jerusalem. And very importantly, this is Roman centurions, Roman soldiers, battle-hardened. And it says that a man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them, leading this multitude, this rabble, he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, we don't know what Judas's motivation was. We can surmise maybe. I mean, Judas oversaw the finances of Jesus and his disciples. He had the money bag. And Scripture tells us that on occasion he would reach his hand and he would take a little money for himself. So money was certainly a temptation. And they gave him 30 silver coins for his betrayal of Christ. 
Perhaps it was the fact that Jesus didn't end up being what Judas and really the rest of the disciples wanted Jesus to be. Uh, They thought he was going to come in as the great conquering hero and overthrow Rome. And you might remember the disciples would argue amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest in King Jesus' administration. This happened just before this. At the Last Supper, during the Passover celebration in the upper room, it says the disciples were arguing with one another, who's going to be the greatest? And so maybe Judas was looking for some uh, prestige and affluence and some power there in the administration of Jesus and all the power he would have but when he saw that things were turning against Jesus and Jesus rode into Jerusalem not to conquer the city against the Romans, maybe there was a resentment or a bitterness that began to grow. We don't really know. But what we do know is that when Judas arranged to betray Jesus, he was very intentional. He said, this is going to be the sign. This is how you're going to know who it is that you are to arrest He said, the sign will be a kiss. Now, why would Judas intentionally and purposefully betray his friend, Jesus, with a kiss? Well, why a kiss? A kiss, if you were a disciple and you had a rabbi, if you were a learner and you had a rabbi, if you were a subject and you had a king, a kiss of this sort was a very symbolic thing. And this kiss, of course, it showed love and it showed admiration. And a kiss of this sort was a common thing in the day, a way of showing deep and great respect and reverence to the person. So that when Judas purposely says, oh, I know how I'm going to show you who it is. I'm going to give him one of those kisses which shows love and affection and and great respect and reverence to him. Ha! It was an ironic gesture. It was a mocking gesture. To walk up to Jesus and say, oh, rabbi, oh, the wonderful rabbi, and to go in for that kiss was a way of mocking Jesus. It's not unsimilar, if you remember the story, how the soldiers would like pretend to bow down to Jesus, and they said, oh, prophesy who hit you, as they covered over his eyes and punched him in the face and beat him with rods. Or maybe you remember in Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at his palace, and they put Jesus in a purple robe that was a symbolism of royalty as a way of mocking his claims to be the very son of God and the king. Or you remember, of course, a crown that they placed upon his head. It was a crown not of gold or silver or of jewels, but a crown of thorns. All of this was to mock and to mock and to laugh. Of course, the great irony, of course, is Jesus was the king, is the king of the universe. And in this mocking kiss of Judas, we see into the darkness and the hardness and maybe the bitterness of his heart. To do it in that way. And what is more, the most astonishing thing of all is how Jesus responds and what Jesus says. It is a light shining in the gloom and the darkness. It is a loving word that Jesus speaks. Jesus could have rebuked him. 
Jesus could have condemned him. How dare you, Judas? How dare you come to me in this way and leading these people? And he could have called down all of his disciples who had those swords sort of hidden in their cloaks. Get them, boys. Even more than that, he could have called down legions and legions, thousands of angels, warriors of heaven to destroy them all and to destroy Judas. He could have condemned him and destroyed him, but he doesn't. It's a light shining in the gloom and the darkness. Jesus turns to him and says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And Jesus is the great surgeon of a human soul. He is is so precise with what our hearts need to hear. And though this might have been a stinging word, it ultimately was a loving word. What is Jesus doing here? Judas, would you betray the Son of Man? That's a reference to Christ and his power and his divinity. Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He is holding up a mirror to Judas to show him just how low he had sunk, just how darkened his heart was. And the attempt here, scholars believe, is that Jesus is trying one last time to have Judas repent. And even though he had already led the mob and the crowd to him to turn to Jesus to receive the love and the mercy of Christ, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It is a loving word from Christ. Secondly, another light shining in the darkness here, it's a gracious act that we see. Uh, Verse 49 says, when those who were around Jesus, and those of course are the disciples, when they saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now that's Peter. We know that from the Gospel of John. That's Peter with his sword, and he cuts off the ear of the great high priest's servant. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. I think, just a quick aside, I think it is fascinating to see that I think it's so much easier to try and to be a warrior for Christ and to be a crusader for Christ than to be a martyr for Christ. But what is happening, this loving act in this moment, this light shining, in just mere moments, Jesus is going to have his hands tied together they're going to be bound and he's going to be led away and he's going to be beaten and scourged in a way that really we can't even begin to understand the pain and the torture that he endured he's going to be spit in the face and punched in the face and put on a mock trial and ultimately nailed to the cross his hands are about to be bound together and led away like a sheep to the slaughter but what does Jesus do For the last time of his life that his hands are free. The last thing he does with his free hands, the very last miracle that Jesus performs before his resurrection is to reach out 
and to bring healing and restoration to someone who was in opposition to him, someone who hated him, someone who was trying to have him killed. You see the gracious act, the mercy and the love of Christ in this moment. It is an echo, it is a foreshadowing, is it not, of what would be happening just a few hours after this as they stretched out his arms onto the wood of the cross and the way that it's written in the Greek it is as they were in the process of crucifying him as the soldiers were hammering the nails into his flesh in his hands and hammering the nails into the flesh of his feet and hammering and hammering him into the cross that in that moment as the hammers are falling Jesus cries out Father forgive them For they know not what they are doing. Oh, the love and the forgiveness that we see in this gracious, this merciful act. And if anyone here, Christian or not Christian, wherever you might believe today, whatever guilt or whatever shame you might, you are forgiven. You are forgiven today in Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, and lastly, a light shining in the darkness, we see and we see the unstoppable plan of God. Look at verse 52. It says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But, he says, this is your hour. This is the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. And it certainly seems, does it not? And imagine being one of the disciples, the followers of Christ, being his mother Mary, being Peter and the rest. It certainly seems that it's all over. From an earthly perspective, a human perspective, and no doubt from Satan's perspective, the forces of evil in this world, they thought things were going wonderful, things were going their way. It seemed like all was lost, that darkness had won, and the light was about to be put out forever. But there's other places in the Gospel of Luke which show us the heavenly the upper story, if you will, the heavenly or godly perspective. One of them uh, is Luke chapter 22. It's when they're in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover. Judas is there right next to Jesus at the table, and it says this. Listen to these words. Jesus says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me, that's Judas, is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. What is Jesus saying? From the heavenly perspective, that the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus, the beating of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus, and yes, ultimately the resurrection, all of that was determined 
before any of these things actually even happened. Now, some of you say, well, then poor Judas, he was just a puppet. And look, it is a great mystery of the faith, and it is what we call a paradox, and we cannot understand how both of these things can be true, running alongside of themselves. But Judas was free to choose. It was his choices. It was his sin. It was his uh, evil and wickedness that led him to steal that money and to turn against Christ and ultimately to betray him. That was the actions of Judas. And yet at the very same time, it was God working through all of that for his amazing sovereign plan. There's another place, it's in Luke chapter 9. It's the very first time Jesus ever predicts his passion, his suffering and his death. Listen to the language Jesus uses here. It says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes. He must be killed and on the third day be raised. Now what's the operative word here? M-U-S-T must. This is saying that it was an absolute divine necessity. There was no other option. Nothing else could happen except his suffering and death and resurrection. The Son of Man must, it says, endure these things. Must. Now you, many of you, some of you, children perhaps, know this song. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing, my God. I, that was my wife I was mocking from the pulpit. I am very sorry. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. There's nothing our God cannot do. Unfortunately, that song is incorrect. There it, look, God can do everything. But there is one thing that even God cannot do. And the one thing that God cannot do is to ever break a promise that he makes to you. It simply is impossible for God to violate his own word or his own will. It says the Son of Man must, must by necessity. This was the power and the force, almost like a gravitational pull. What goes up must come down. The gravitational pull of the love of God and his covenant and promises that he made to his people and to you here today. He can't do it. Now... Some of you have studied English, literature, Shakespeare. Some of you know Hamlet. There is a famous expression from Hamlet that some of you, even if you don't know it came from Hamlet, maybe you've heard it somewhere, and it's this. To be hoisted by your own petard. Some of you are saying, you sound like a crazy person. What are you saying? To be hoisted by your own petard. This is an expression. Look it up. Google it. Hoisted by your own petard. Now, the question is, what's a petard by which you can be hoisted? That is lifted up and thrown back into the air. A petard looked like this. 
It was a early form of explosive and like a primitive cannon. You would put it up to the door of the castle with all the explosives in there. You would light the fuse and then the petard would blast a hole into the castle of your enemy and then you would make your way in. But what would sometimes happen is you would light the petard the explosion would go off, but in fact it would ricochet off the wall of the door of the castle and blast the person backward who had lit the petard. You were hoisted by your own petard. In other words, here's the point. The very same thing that your enemy was trying to use to defeat you defeats your enemy. It is the precise, the exact same thing that your enemy was using, believing and hoping was going to destroy you that destroys your enemy. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the cross. Judas, his evil, evil, dark, decision to betray Christ, that, that dark scheme of Judas, and Jesus is using the darkness and the evil of Judas to defeat evil. Do you see that? He used the schemes of Satan and all the things that Satan and the forces of evil were trying to do to defeat Satan and to defeat the forces of evil. He uses darkness to ultimately overthrow darkness. He uses death to destroy and defeat death once and for all. As we say a lot here, it is the death of death and the death of Christ. And that means that nothing, it is an unstoppable plan Whatever darkness in your life, whatever disappointments in your life, whatever failures, moral failures, sins, mistakes you've made that you are still grieving, you can't believe things that you still are hurting you, and yet even your worst sin, God can use against the sin and lead you to salvation. And I close with this. And it's, I've, I've told this before, but I've been thinking about it a lot because of the events happening in Europe and Ukraine, and this is a story. When the Soviet army, the Soviet empire, similar to what we're seeing, when the Soviet army invaded the country of Latvia and they moved into the city of Riga, that's the capital, Riga is the capital of Latvia, the Soviet soldiers in the army was making their way block by block building by building through the city of Riga and they were ransacking and they were destroying and they were taking whatever they wanted and they were burning and it was horrifying. There was an, this is a true story. There was an American Red Cross in Riga, Latvia. And the director of the American Red Cross was watching as the Soviet military drew closer and closer and closer. He picks up the phone and he calls the American consulate. And he says, do I have permission to raise the American flag, the flag of the United States above the flag of the Red Cross? And the American consulate said, there is no precedent for such an action. The director of the American Red Cross said to the consulate, as of now, I'm setting the precedent. And he raised the flag 
the stars and stripes, the American flag above the flag of the Red Cross. And guess what? The Soviet army didn't even get near them. Why? Because there is a difference between the flag which represents an organization and the flag which represents a sovereign nation. Why? An organization can do a lot of good. An organization can organize. An organization can help people. A sovereign nation, the United States of America, has real power and real might, and they didn't dare touch. That's you, Christian. What flag is flying over you today and wherever you go in your life? It is the flag of our Father Lutheran Church. A wonderful organization, a wonderful institution. We, we love each other and wonderful music and we go out and we serve in our neighborhoods. Is that the flag that's flying over you? The flag of an organization called Our Father? Or is it the flag of the unstoppable and all-powerful kingdom of God. The same God, the same Jesus Christ that worked through the wickedness and the evil of Judas and Satan and death itself is the same God, the same Jesus Christ working through everything in your life. It is unstoppable. Even your worst day, your worst mistakes, he is using in his unstoppable plan to bring you to himself because he loves you and wants you to be with him. A light's shining in the darkness. It was that loving word. It was a gracious act in the unstoppable plan. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not and the darkness cannot overcome. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.